Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Luke 16, verse 1 to 15. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of of your management, because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will, discover, will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 liters of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bull, sit down quickly, and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bull and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when, so when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with little, with very little, can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people, what people value highly is, is detestable in God's sight. Good afternoon, church. Wow, it seems kind of dark out there with uh, the clocks going back. I wonder if you've ever, ever entered into a story or ever entered into a conversation or a joke at the wrong time. I know I have, and, and you're kind of entering in, and you're thinking, oh, wow, that, that person's so weird, or did they just say that? And you enter in, and you're, and you're thinking, wow, what, what's this about? Because you're entering in at a time in which you don't exactly understand what's all going on or what the, what the context is. So does anybody here watch Friends? Has anybody watched Friends? Show of hands. Three, four, everybody. Wonderful. So there's an episode whenever, whenever Ross and uh, Charlie, Joey's girlfriend, are, are having a, a joke. And Joey's sitting there as well. And, and Ross and Charlie are both PhDs in paleontology. Any paleontologists here? I didn't think so. And so anyway, they, they share a joke, and, and Ross laughs, and Charlie laughs, and then Joey, he laughs as well. And then Ross and Charlie stop laughing, and they look at Joey, and, and they're wondering, what are you laughing about? Because obviously, Joey hasn't a clue. He doesn't know the context. He doesn't know paleontology. He doesn't know very much. The point is, whether you're in a conversation or whether you're in a joke, context is king. Context is king. And so lack of context is like a blunt pencil. You missed the point. Amen? 
Wonderful, very good. All right, amen, we can close. Let's go home. <laughs> you know, last Sunday, Steve continued our series on the upside-down kingdom of God in Luke. And we looked at the parable of the lost sons. And today, we're kind of going to explore a tricky parable um, of the unjust steward. And so this parable follows exactly after the parable of the lost sons. And so what is true is that the kingdom of God goes against the grain of society as we know it. The use of wealth has eternal consequences because it reflects where our allegiances lie, doesn't it? In the prodigal son, the, the wayward child at least has an opportunity to, to return to the father so that he, he realizes his entire existence depends upon his father's grace. And so today we're going to see in a, in a similar familiar vein of another parable, another example that follows the same line. And so the context is, is our need for, for a more precise understanding of culture or of the culture into which Jesus spoke is perhaps greater in this parable than any other parable you'll read. So the disciples are the primary audience. In verse, verse 1 it says they're addressed specifically. But it's safe to assume that the Pharisees are present as well. And you can see in verse 14 that the Pharisees, they too heard all these things. And so the context here is one of instruction for the disciples rather than controversy for opponents. And so the most probable cultural setting for this parable is, is that of a landed estate. So you've, you've got an estate and you've got the master who owns it and you've got a manager who has the authority to carry out the business of the estate. So the, the manager or the steward is looking after the estate. And the debtors were most likely renters who'd agreed to pay a fixed, a fixed price or a fixed amount of produce for the yearly rent. So they wouldn't have paid in cash, they would have paid in produce. And so the steward was no doubt getting a little extra under the table for him and his family. Nobody says anything about that. That's just what he gets. But these amounts would not have been reflected in the signed bills. So instead, the manager or the steward would most likely have been a salaried official. So he would have had his salary. He would have been getting the exact same every month on month, no matter what. And the master would have been seen as a master of noble character. And I say this because there's quite, quite a lot of disagreement within the scholarly world over this. Was the master noble? Was he not? I'm going to suggest that the master was noble. I'm going to suggest that the, that the steward got a salary, a fixed salary. And within this community, the steward and the master would both have been known by, by, by the renters and by everyone in the community. Now we've got a problem because we see that the master goes and fires the wasteful servant. And so for us, the big idea this afternoon is to show that the upside-down kingdom of God reconfigures our attitudes towards wealth, towards stewardship, and towards dependence. And so through the retelling of the parable, we're going to explore the predicament and the grounds for salvation. Steve, do you have the clicker? Is somebody have the clicker? I don't have the clicker. Wonderful. Very good. So listen, I want to retell a story. So the account begins with a rich man who is the manager in charge of administering his affairs. And so the, the, the manager serves as a bill collector, so to speak. And so some people bring charges against him that, that he's wasted his manager's resources. So chances are these people are from the community, people he knows, people the manager knows, and he's wasted the, the, the master's uh, resources. And so interestingly, this is, this is super, this is incredible. The very same word for wasted his resources is the same word that Luke uses 
for the younger son who squandered his father's wealth. And so it is no coincidence that Luke uses this exact same Greek word within these two parables. There's such a parallel here. Essentially, the manager hasn't been effective with the use of his master's wealth. And so with his oncoming audit, uh, his dismissal will soon follow. So what's this I'm hearing about you? Or, or I've been hearing this for a long time. Or, or it's kind of like there's a steady stream of things I'm hearing. And so the servant doesn't know uh, exactly what the master has been hearing. And so he does well to say nothing. And, and so the servant doesn't reply. The servant literally keeps quiet. He's silent. And so he does the right thing. Because if he was to speak, he might end up saying something that the master doesn't know about. So his best thing to do is to keep quiet. He's silent. So the steward remains silent. And the master breaks the silence with an ultimatum. And, and, and he says, give an account of, my, of your management. Because you can't be my manager anymore. So give an account of your management. Because you can't be a, a, my manager anymore. Essentially, you return, you, you hand over the books. I want to see the books because you're fired. And so can you imagine after the first question, there's utter silence. The, 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 the master, is, he says this to him and the manager says nothing. And I don't know about you, but if that was me, I'd want to protest my innocence. But anyway, the, the manager says nothing. And then after being told that he has to hand over the books and he's fired, what does he say? What does the manager say? He says nothing. After the second question, you'd want to protest your innocence. You'd want to at least defend your position. And so there's loads of different ploys that the manager could have moved to. And if you want to know about ploys that people can move to, look at the government. They'll blame here, there, and everywhere. They'll, they'll blame others, but anyone but themselves. The, the manager could have went and blamed, uh, blamed the, the, the community. He could have went and blamed, uh, in fact, he could have blamed his, his master. He could have blamed everybody else to try and defend himself. But no, the manager is silent once again. And so the silence is really significant. You know, it mightn't look significant because we're, we're reading it from a passage, but imagine Jesus telling this story to his disciples. There's absolute silence from the manager. And the silence is significant because by his silence, he's affirming that I'm guilty. Oh man, I'm guilty. The, the, the master knows the truth. The master expects obedience. And now I can't get my job back. And I don't offer any excuse. So had the steward anything to say in his self-defense, he would have said it now. But he confesses his guilt in the briefest form possible by saying nothing. And so now all the focus is on the future, about getting his job back. And so it's kind of like a, like a play, a drama. This is the end of the scene. And the next scene moves to the future. And so with our context lenses in place, that's funny, context lenses, <laughs> it would be crazy to look past the fact that the manager hasn't been jailed. You know, we don't think very much of this, but, but the manager has, has been told off, but he hasn't been jailed. He hasn't been jailed, he hasn't been reported. It's absolute daylight robbery what he's done. And it appears the master in these circumstances has been unusually merciful towards him. I want you to remember that. It appears that the master in these circumstances has been unusually merciful towards the manager. The, the master expects obedience and he'll act in judgment over the disobedient manager, but yet he's also the manager who, who shows unusual mercy and generosity even to a dishonest steward. So the original hearers wouldn't miss this fact. This was absolutely mind-blowing. And so in the text, in verse 3, the manager begins to wrestle with himself. What will I do now? And remarkably, he even considers digging. 
something that in his context an educated man wouldn't have even considered doing. We expect him to reject this idea of digging because it's beneath his dignity, but no, he rejects the idea of it because of his physical weakness. And so likewise, he rejects begging. And begging, which in this context was a legitimate but yet despised profession. And it's crazy the fact he even entertains the idea of these two. And so the manager's problem isn't just where he's going to get more money from in in the immediate, but it's it's his image and it's whether he'll be accepted into people's home. It's whether the community will actually accept him in the long term. Because once this gets out, he's not just sacked from his job, he's sacked from his community, he's sacked from his livelihood, he's sacked from from everything that he's known to this point. Once the community finds out that he's been fired for fiddling the books, he'll be rejected by all. So he needs to do something that's going to preserve himself. He needs to create a situation that's going to change this devastating public image. And so like a good drama, we're not actually told what this plan is going to be. With the, with the prodigal son, the prodigal son played it over in his mind and, and we knew what he was going to bring to the father. But in this time, we don't know. So as a listener, we're having to watch it unfold. It's, it's like edge of your seat. So what we do know is that the manager's plan is going to be to risk everything based upon the quality of mercy he's already received from the master. I want you to get that. What we do know is that the manager's plan is to risk everything on the quality of mercy he's already received from the master. If he fails, he's jailed. If he succeeds, he's going to win the praise of the community. So the, the manager knows that he's sacked, but the debtors don't know that he's sacked. And there's an opportunity. Look at verses 5 and 7, or 5 to 7. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked them the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 liters of oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 24. Wow, so summoning these guys would seem really odd. You would only do this at at, at harvest time. There's nothing to suggest it's harvest time. And so it's it's crazy because essentially there's no reason for the, the debtors to meet with the manager. And the unthinkable happens, the manager ends up cutting it down. And while, while we are seeing a, these two different types of cut, it's not a percentage that we're looking at, but it actually works out at roughly 500 denarii. And so you can imagine the manager doesn't care for percentages anymore. He essentially brings these guys in and literally deducts 500 denarii off everything. Absolutely everything. So thus, the steward thus achieves the position of the factory workman. The factory foreman who's arranged the Christmas bonus for everybody. I don't know about you guys, but I get a, get a box of chocolates for my Christmas bonus. I have a severe nut orgy. What do the box of chocolates have? The flipping nuts in them. <laughs> for six, this is my, my, my sixth year receiving this box of chocolates, and I've never ate them once. <laughs> I'll bring them back to you. In the last scene, we're back with the master again. The manager finishes his daring plan by providing accounts to the master. What's he going to say? What's going to happen? What could the master do? For the master, it would be extremely difficult to, uh, to obtain his legal rights to the previous bills. And in the process of trying to do that, he'd convict himself. He'd, he'd bring shame upon himself. He'd bring shame upon the Lord. And he'd bring shame upon the community. And at this stage, the community are rejoicing over the, the huge discounts. The community are happy. The manager is pleased. And the master is a hero in their eyes. It's a win-win for everybody. 
So should the master go to the community and explain, listen, listen lads, this was, this was an absolute mistake. I've already fired the manager. So everything that he's signed with you, everything he's done with you here, that's null and void. Or should he keep quiet and let the steward ride high in the wave of popular enthusiasm? What should he do? So he put a brave face on. He put a brave face on an impossible situation and he commended the steward, thus securing, securing for the steward a reputation of piety, a reputation of honor. And both the master and the steward were acting decisively in a difficult situation. He commended the steward for being a wise fellow. You know, Old Testament wisdom can be seen as self-preservation. Can be seen as self-preservation. And in this case, the steward knew that the master was merciful and generous. So he risked everything on the aspect of his manager's, or the master's nature. The master's nature is one of mercy from what we've seen. And so the, the steward or the, or the manager goes and risks himself upon that. And he wins because the master was generous and merciful. Guys, the root problem, I'm not hiding the problem here. I want to address it. The root problem here is that the very thing we stumble over is the commendation of the steward who's so plainly dishonest. No doubt about it. He is dishonest. But the steward is commended not for his dishonesty, but for taking resolute action in the midst of a crisis. Do you see the difference? The coming of Jesus forces people into decisions and the decision making. And so when even dishonest worldly people know how and when to take action, how much more so those who are followers of Jesus? It is the astuteness of the servant that's commended, not his commercial practices. We need to get that. T.W. Manson reminds us that there is a world of difference between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly, and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. And it's the first we need to look at here. I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly. And this brings us to our predicament. Our predicament here is that when Jesus began his ministry and when he, he inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, he opened this, uh, the lid on a significant problem. The problem is this, the Pharisees, the Pharisees cared more for worldly wealth than treasure in heaven. The problem is this, that heart issues couldn't be restored by wealth. The problem is this, the kingdom of God could not be bought with money. Jesus entered into society at a time in which cash is king. And guess what, 2100 years later, cash is still king. You know, there's a crisis that the kingdom of God brings to the sinner. And that same crisis remains today. And Jesus elsewhere says, whoever wants to gain their life must lose it. Or whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. The predicament is this, that wealth can become a hindrance to the kingdom of God. The wealth can become a hindrance to dependence on God. The kingdom of God means coming under the rule and reign of a king. And the dishonest manager was decisive and he was astute to risk it all on the mercy of the master. And the question remains then, what will take center spot on the throne of your heart today? Or what does take center spot on the throne of your heart today? Or maybe what is it that you're coming under the rule and reign of? That's a great question to ask yourself. What are you coming under the rule and reign of? Because the answer to that will reveal the predicament. And more than that, we've got the grounds of salvation. 
You know, a summary of this parable looks like this. You've got God, the master, as a God of judgment and mercy. And because of his evil, the manager is caught in the crisis of the coming of the kingdom. Excuses will get him absolutely nowhere. The only option is to risk and to entrust everything to the unfailing mercy of the generous master, who he can be confident will accept to pay the price of the manager's salvation. Kenneth Bailey said, this clever rascal was wise enough to place his total trust in the quality of mercy experienced at the beginning of this story. That trust was vindicated and disciples need that same kind of wisdom. Guys, the danger here is that we can miss this point. We can miss the point where amassing wealth becomes a helpful thing, a good thing, a thing that's good for the kingdom of God. Where amassing wealth can, by whatever means necessary, will aid you getting into heaven. And Jesus goes on later to say, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says that the only way to find your life is to lose it. And he says, no one can come to the Father except through me. So the, the master was, was merciful toward the manager. We know that. And we know that, that the manager went and, and cut a serious, serious amount off the bills. And that's all well and good. The community rejoices. Everyone's happy. The community also, or the debtors, pay the bill to the, the master. And so the, the master receives his bills. But the bills are a fraction of what they should have been. And so in all of us, we see that the master has to pay a heavy price for what the, the steward or for what the manager has done. And so the, the, the master had a decision to make. He, he, it wasn't just the, the astuteness of the, the manager. The master also had to decide, am I going to be willing to take this hit or not? Because the master could very well have went and said, listen, it was the manager, nothing to do with me. I want my exact amount. But the master was merciful. He was willing to take the hit. It points to Jesus so much. And our predicament is that wealth is a huge stumbling block. The religious types in the first century stumbled on it. And we were at a huge risk of following suit. But yet our grounds for salvation is Jesus, banking our future on him and not our gains. Guys, we mightn't see this, but there are so many comparisons between this story and the one that Steve spoke on last week. In Luke 15, a son throws himself on the mercy of his father. In Luke 16, a servant throws himself on the mercy of his master. Both the steward and the son betray a trust. Neither the prodigal or the steward or the servant offer any excuses whatsoever. Both the prodigal and the steward experience extraordinary mercy from their superiors. The steward is, is not jailed for changing the bills. The prodigal is not punished for wasting the family's assets. You know, we, we don't see anything about jail, even though the bills have been cut. In Luke 15, we, we don't see any punishment for the family's assets for being wasted. And both, there is missing the final sin. You know, imagine, imagine how rubbish a story would be or a film would be if the final sin was cut out of it. I read a book recently, and I actually haven't finished the last chapter. I, I should really get around to it. I don't know how it ends because I haven't read it. And that's rubbish. But in both of these parables, there is missing the final sin. We do not know the final response 
from the older brother, and they do not know the final result of the steward's act. And you may ask, well, that's all well and good, Matthew, but so what? So what? So what if we don't know the end of the story? So what if this parable is told? That's, that's great. You know, I, I want to finish on two simple applications. Risk on the long-term gains. And that's not easy. The manager risked it all on the mercy of his master. The manager had a long-term lens. You know, in verse 8, it notes that, that the people of this world are more shrewd than the people of the light. Wow, what does that mean? That is, those who are not Christians give more thought to their physical well-being than Christians do to their spiritual well-being. Those who are not Christians give more thought to their physical well-being than Christians do to their spiritual. Are we making decisions with regards to who we are and what we have in light of eternity? Or are we making decisions with regard to who we are and what we have in, in light of the here and now? Is it going to benefit me now in the short term? Is there going to be a financial reward? Is there going to be a financial remuneration for this? There's a guy called Moffat, and he says, the sons of light are the servants of God, well-intentioned as they are. They often lack the wisdom to use what they have as wisely as worldly use their possessions for their very different ends. As our goal, as the Christian's goal, is a treasure in heaven, then surely we should use our money, our wealth, our possessions for the purposes of helping others. Money cannot secure an eternal future with God, but dependence upon a son, Jesus can. Amen. Amen. Do you know the mercy of Father God well enough to entrust your future to him? Well enough to allow this to shape your decisions in the here and now, allow you, allow you to shape how you steward your possessions. The key is to risk for long-term gains, but the key also is to steward the short-term well. You know, the manager took decisive action in the immediate, and indecisiveness leads to paralysis. And I I don't just say this to you, I say this to me, because I am super indecisive. But indecisiveness leads to paralysis. Are there areas in our lives where we're too indecisive or we're, we're not willing to commit, not willing to count the cost, Maybe within church, it's not joining a city group. Maybe it's not, not committing to a, to a servant team. Perhaps it's not having that conversation with a colleague in work that you know you need to be having. Perhaps in your, in your personal time with Jesus, he's encouraged you or he's, he's prompted you to go and say something to somebody or to encourage somebody or, or maybe to give that 20 quid to somebody or maybe that word of encouragement or maybe that phone call. That's what it's like to not steward the short-term well. You know, how we live our days is how we live our lives. And if what we do with what we've been given isn't filtered through the lens of the mercy of God, then perhaps we are our own God. Perhaps we see treasures as mine and not God's, the result of my hard work, the result of my labor, and not a gift from God. You know, in the Old Testament, you've, you've got a man that goes up a mountain because the Lord tells him to sacrifice his son, his only son, the promise, the son that, that should never have been born, the son to a barren woman that couldn't have children, the son that was, was physically impossible. And yet God is saying, go, go you up the mountain, you, you sacrifice him. 
You know, that man was willing to risk it all because he trusted the Lord. And the Lord said, said to him, I'm, I'm testing you, don't, don't, don't do that. Take him back, you've, you've passed the test. You know, it is absolutely key that we, we look at life with a long-term lens, with a view of eternity. And as we do that, then we begin to steward what we have in the short-term well. You know, like in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus doesn't close the parable. He doesn't finish it. You know, Jesus only forms an apt conclusion for those who are already committed. And so to the uncommitted, Jesus is not saying that they should use their money to earn salvation. But he is telling his followers, he is telling Christians that they should demonstrate the fruits of repentance in the area of worldly wealth. You know, if, if you're uncommitted, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, then I want to challenge you with this thought. Are the eternal consequences, are there eternal consequences to how you steward your things? Because if there are, then serious questions need to be asked. And does your bank account or possessions hinder you for, from becoming a follower of Jesus? Or maybe what would it take for you to become a follower of Jesus? What would, what would allow you to step over that line? I definitely had another quote there, but it's gone. But a guy, Darrell Buck, says that the treasures that we most need to pursue are those that cause God to be pleased. The treasures we most need to pursue are those that cause God to be pleased. Can I invite you back up again, Andrew? Guys, this is a, is a really difficult and awkward parable. I, I totally get it if you have questions. I, I, I still have questions. Scholars still have questions. And so, you know, after the service finishes, I'm, I'm going to be up here and, and I'd encourage you, if you have a question on the parable and on, on any of the characters and what it means, do come up and, uh, and ask me. I mightn't have the answer, but maybe Steve will. But I, I'd love to chat to you more. And you know, there'll be a prayer team here afterwards as well. I know the, the key today, the, the, the takeaway, the takeaway is that, you know, our, our, our possessions, our wealth can hinder us from dependence upon God. However, and there is an incredible however, however, that whenever we have a lens of looking at life through eternity, through what Jesus has already done for us and through where we are going, then it will allow us in the short term to steer our possessions well. And so the, the final question is, what are you going to do? For, the un, for, the, for those who are, who's not a Christian, for so, somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, what are you going to do with that? And so for somebody that does follow Jesus, what impact might this have in your week to come? I'm going to close in prayer. Jesus, everything that we have is yours. Father, I pray that you would uh, allow us to release the grip that we have on these things ever so slightly, so that if you would want to do something with what we have, then we would be willing to go along with it. Jesus, may we be a church that is so in love with you, that we are so in tune to your spirit, that whenever you, you prompt us in a particular area, we will not hesitate to go. We will not hesitate to make change. We will not hesitate to hear your voice and act upon it. Father, I, I pray that in, the, in line with, with wealth and stewardship, may we be a church that, that bucks the trend. May we be a church that, that acts and lives out in a, a countercultural way so that Dublin sees something different. So that this 
upside down kingdom can be manifest here, here on earth as it is in heaven. That is our desire, Jesus. And so will you cause us to fall into dependence upon you? Because we cannot do this on our own and we refuse to do it on our own. And so we call out and we cry out to you today, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We pray you go before us this week. Will you tune our hearts to yours that we may live out our lives in ways that bring honor and glory to you, Jesus. Amen.